Okay. Okay. Um, could you um, comment on the two types of dependent origination? The the sort of Theravadan concept of a temporal uh, dependent origination, one thing happens after the next, and then the more sort of um, Tibetan Mahayana type of uh, dependent origination is dependent co-origination. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if, you know, it's a very subtle and it's a very powerful and important difference. And how does that impact on the way that we conceive of or perceive reality and this very foundation of the Buddha Dharma, which is dependent on origination. Um, and I wondered if that was something that you could perhaps touch on. Well, yes. Um, the Buddha's presentation of it was um, quite compact. Uh, there's not a lot of elaboration, but there's a lot of secondary reference to it in different places that uh, is somewhat helpful. But um, I believe what we find in the, in the Mahayana and perhaps the most, uh, the, the deepest, uh, most profound development of the idea uh, prior to modern times uh, is uh, uh, in the Huayan school of uh, uh, the Chinese uh, Buddhism. And uh, the, it's based on the Flower Garland Sutra. Um, but yes, it, the, I think the point that Buddha was trying to drive home initially was in a sense it was the mutual causality but probably the primary point is that there is nothing that stands outside of causality that everything is due to causes and conditions and everything in turn serves as cause and condition for things in the future um, the dual way he has of phrasing it which I can't remember literally necessarily accurately, but it's when um, this is, that is, when this is not, that is not, when this arises, that arises, when this ceases, that ceases. Um, if you look at this, and the one person I know of who has examined just those four simple lines at a greater depth is Tanasaro Bhikkhu. Um, but uh, implied in there is mutual causality. Uh, now, if you go beyond that, there is also um, teleological causality too, which, um, you know, in an obvious sense, people do things because of expected consequences, which is a form of teleological causality. Um, although there is also a, a convergence that the choice to do something for a particular goal is also based on, on a lot of preceding factors. Um, in just thinking in terms of causality, so well, another really, really good development of that is uh, uh, 
um, or name will come to me in a moment, but um, um, it is uh, mutual causality in Budo, Buddhism and general systems theory by Joanna Macy. And, uh, and uh, that's, that's really some tremendously good reading. But in the simplest sense, um, we realize that, that not only is nothing outside of causality, but there is a causal interconnectedness to everything, which we, uh, any particular event has a large number of causes and conditions uh, without which uh, there, there would not, uh, uh, without which they could, that event could not have occurred. And likewise, each one of those events has a very large number of causes and conditions that were necessary. So if we imagine an event here, there's a rapidly expanding cone into the past of uh, necessary and sufficient um, causal events that, well, not so, absolutely necessary causal events. And if we take a second event over here, so we've got two, two events that seem unrelated in the present moment, but both have this rapidly expanding cone of causal influences. So it's actually, it's not very, you don't go very back, far back in time before there's an overlap between these. So in, in that regard, uh, we can still see there as being uh, a potential uh, independence in the present moment, but not in the in the past leading up to that. Um, in a sense, we can say that that the present moment contains the entirety of the past within it. Now, that's that's sort of at the, uh, the next obvious level. Then there is the uh, the kind of causal interdependence um, where, um, well, first of all, what we do is, is we, we take this with our two expanding cones of causes and conditions. Now we look at effects. Every event has a large variety of effects, and each one of those events subsequently has a large variety of effects. So essentially what we do with this is we come to a place where there's only in this present moment that you can regard these two things as separate because if you, in terms of, of both the past and the future, uh, their interconnectedness becomes obvious. Then there's a question of the interconnectedness of the moment, which is a mutual causality uh, and uh, interdependence. And one of the really interesting things that, uh, that, uh, 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 that quantum physics presents us with is, is what's referred to as quantum entanglement. And so um, events at a distance that the, the limitations of speed of light would preclude any transfer of information seem to be related um, and uh, um, that, um, that's actually been demonstrated. Uh, uh, Einstein called it spooky action at a dense distance, and, and 
propose an experiment that would disprove it. And then finally, uh, someone was able to actually do the experiment and to to prove it. And it's been repeated quite a, quite a few times that things are actually connected in that way. But in addition, right now we're just talking about what we can know about something from our current uh, perspective. Uh, we are limited by our physical senses and we're li limited by the capacities of our brain slash mind. So we already know because of the devices that we've created that extend our physical senses so that we become aware of much more of the, of the electromagnetic spectrum than what our eyes can detect and so on and so forth. Uh, what we don't know is what we don't know, uh, although there's evidence of that. There are the mysteries of uh, dark matter and dark energy as examples of things like that, where there is evidence that there is something there, but it is completely outside the realm of our sensory capacities and therefore outside the realm of our capacities so far to create, to, to develop technology that can, can reveal that. So it's, it's most reasonable just from a totally logical, you know, scientific, philosophical point of view to uh, suspect that there, to strongly believe that there is a degree of interconnectedness and uh, interdependence and an interpenetrating nature to all that is. Uh, and that limitations like the speed of light and things like that do not uh, apply to this, uh, which is basically the idea of, of suchness. So this is one of several ideas that's actually present in uh, the suttas, as I say, secondary references to Paticca Samuppada. Um, and uh, as is the concept of em emptiness uh, inherently present in, in the earliest Buddhist teaching that were later developed by other schools and particularly the Mahayana because uh, the Mahayana was a fertile ground for expanding upon new ideas as, as they became available. So is that... Um, it, that's very helpful because, and I, I just want to um, sort of give you a little background of why I asked this question, because I've been um, rereading um, Dogen and Nagarjuna, and really the concept of nonlinear time and sequential time, and it, it's so fascinating to me that these great, brilliant minds, before there was any hint of what technology was and everything, had already this understanding of the, the nature of time itself is not just fixed in the way that Einstein said it began when it began and it goes on. No, it's, it's like we don't know what happened before. And it's like, yeah. you know, and the, the past, present and future are all rolled into what we call now, which is not actually a static thing. I mean, I think it's such an astonishingly beautiful kind of way of um, bringing together, if you think of time as nonlinear. So yeah. to me, those two types of dependent origination give you this difference between the way one conceptualizes time. And I don't yeah. know if that makes sense or not. Yeah. But that's where it came from. Right. That Yes, that nonlinearity. Uh, uh, I mean, just the the fact that 
the notion of time itself is something that our minds superimpose on experience and it's very uh you know there is no way our minds can or at least there's no way my mind has ever been able to conceptualize even experiences that i've had that seem to uh deny uh uh time you know like there is an experience that i would label the eternal present when i make statements like the entirety of the past is contained in the present moment and the entirety of every possible future is contained in the present moment so in that sense there is an eternal present but then as soon as i want as, as soon as i turn my logical rational mind to it then that present moment is somehow evolving and there's more past being created and uh more future being converted from potential to actual and there's just i there's no way that i can ever i can take those experiences and and there's no way i can conceptualize them my mind just doesn't cannot speak that language okay. but um as i understand it from some things that are a little bit beyond my ability to follow uh, that's really not a problem in mathematics no and i think the word that really helped me is presencing that we're not just present it's that we are being in the present we are becoming so presencing is kind of like the the word that i think really for me kind of defines and helps me to understand that very aspect of that we lose ourselves from nonlinear time in i deathless eternity however one wants to call that nowness yeah. into this immediate you know oh that just happened and now i'm here and that's got to happen in the future and stuff like that but presencing if we're present and aware of that as well i think it's a very powerful word to help to understand for myself but thank you yes. it really helps you're welcome uh, now that we've got a couple of other people joined uh are there, are there any of these questions from last month that uh, are are yours that i haven't answered because i want to deal with those first before i deal with ones that I'm pretty sure I haven't answered yet. <laughs> yes, David. You're muted. Let me unmute you. Yeah. Now, now, can you talk? Say oh. something. Hi. Can Good. you hear me? Yes, I can. I was saying that uh, I asked a question and I didn't make it for the last meeting. Yes. Um, maybe you can answer that one. All right. Let me see if I can find that question. Okay. So, um, are you David Macias? Yeah. Okay. Right. Yes, I see your question then here. Um, you say I'm currently in stage zero. despite attempting to transition to stage 1 for years i aim to one hour sit not once i lasted that long and in fact i haven't attempted to sit for weeks 
to be fair, I just came out of a long uh, depression and my self-discipline and motivation are recovering back from extremely low levels. I intellectually understand that meditation is crazy good for you, yet I haven't been able to transform that knowledge into fuel to fire up my motivation and anchor myself onto the pillow. I guess my question would be about self-motivation, something along the lines of how to build up the intention of sitting when motivation is the negatives shortly after I is in the negatives shortly after I sit. So um, is there anything that has changed since you originally posed that question? Nope. It's been no. Okay. Well, certainly, uh, certainly depression, depression is something that uh, can um, just crush all motivation of any kind. And, but coming out of it. To be fair, I've been, um, I've been taking uh, medication that has been working. Mm -hmm. So I've been out of depression for months now. It's not like I just recently came out. And are you experiencing motivation, more or less normal motivation for other kinds of activities and things? Mm, um, That depends what I compare it with. If I compare it uh, from the last few years, my motivation is pretty good. If I compare it uh, from uh, um, pre-depression times, it's low. It's very low. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, uh, hopefully that will improve over time. Um, what now, without getting into too deeply a personal thing with you, so I'll, I'll just speak in general. Um, often, now there's there is a, a, a depression that's basically physiological, but it often begins with a a depression that is due to circumstances. And it's also the case that the predisposition to uh, uh, deep depression is something that uh, can be both uh, genetically and environmentally uh, produced you know, in, in, in an adult like yourself, that both previous events in your lifetime and some genetic predisposition could combine to make you predisposed to uh, entering into a quite deep depression um, due to life events. And then likewise, when that's sustained long enough, that same depression can become essentially physiological. In, in other words, it's no longer the result of those events. They're completely gone. But the reason I mention this, and not implying to anybody that this applies to you, is that whatever there was initially that predisposed that kind of person to... Uh, to deep depression when negative life events occur can still be an obstacle. And um, depression has 
a quality of being self-centered and often in a very negative way. So uh, without saying any more than that, have you approached motivation for meditation as being for the sake of someone other than yourself? Mm, no, I mean implicitly, but uh, no, I haven't uh, decided to make that effort for somebody in specific. So that, that is one thing that uh, you could try. Um, do you have contact with people who you might regard as being highly spiritually developed in some way? Mm, I uh, have contact with people who, a uh, few people that uh, are spiritually um, active, I guess. Well, to the degree that you can just simply draw inspiration from your contact with them and your observations about them, that would, that's kind of a, a, a starting point. Mm -hmm. But also uh, uh, watching inspirational uh, presentations on YouTube and TED Talks and things like that might help. But what I'm suggest, yeah, and, and, and those are very well worth doing. But I would suggest that you look into the motivation for meditation as being for the benefit of others, for the benefit of your family, your associates, the people you work with, your neighbors, and perhaps ultimately for the benefit of, of all beings. Uh, see if you can make the sort of bodhisattva goal of uh, practicing meditation in order to be uh, awakened in a way that you can help other beings. Or just simply practice meditation so that you can become the best person that you're capable of being and therefore live a life that when it's when it's over, you can say, I, I lived a good life. I, I made a difference in the world. Uh, you know, so yes. I helped other people. I made positive change somewhere. Um, and if you feel like that works for you too, you might supplement the meditation with actually intentionally doing something that is of, of the nature of, of helping and serving others in some way who are less fortunate than yourself. Okay. Um, <laughs> what I understood is that um, <clears throat> maybe I should uh, uh, aim my motivation or focus my motivation on uh, helping others. Like I, I think the, for a most immediate uh, burst of motivation, it would be somebody to help somebody that is yeah. immediate to me or at arm's reach. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, uh, that's an idea. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, I, I hope that, uh, I hope that, that one or more of uh, the things that I suggested will help you. And, uh, um, I look forward to hearing back from you about whether it does or not. And, uh, I, I will keep you posted. Thank you. Thank you.
Okay. Anyone else has a question that's already been posted but not answered? Uh, Kyle has posted has something here in the chat. So, okay, so these are new questions. Um, yeah, I feel a little bit hesitant not answering the questions of people that because I was late arriving, that some of these people whose questions didn't get answered may have come and thought there was some mistake about the time or that we weren't having this session and have gone. Um, at the same time, you're here, Kyle, so. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, I, I've decided. Let's, uh, uh, let's look at your questions, Kyle. Um, you say, my career has caused me a good deal of suffering, not because it's misaligned with Buddhist values, but because it's not fully aligned with my values or aptitudes. Meditation has eased the suffering over the past few years, but I still feel a deep longing for something more creative and meaningful to me. In this way, hopefully I can maximize benefit to others as well. My question is, related to career or other big facets of life, how do we disentangle simple aversion from following the heart's true path? When is it wise to stay the course and get to the root of suffering? And when is it wise to make a change? Well, um, the answer to this, Kyle, is that you have to do some serious and effective introspection um, and if you if you are a meditator I see you're muted right now and I can't see your picture either so uh, you can't give me hand gestures so are you a meditator and how long have you been and and what is your meditation like and the reason that I ask this is because it's through development of powerful mindfulness, powerful introspective awareness that you're going to be able to uh, do the things necessary to disentangle uh, to disentangle the various factors that are um, uh, uh, making it hard to decide what to do or where to go next. Hey, cool. Awesome. I'm here. So yep, yep. Uh, meditating, you know, quite avidly, but perhaps not correctly for uh, probably a eight to 10 years mm -hmm. and uh, found your book about a year and a half ago and have now been bouncing around uh, stages four or five, six, uh, maybe dabble in seven once in a while. But um, that's that's about where I stand. So I'm just wondering, is it is it something that comes as kind of a, a feeling or, you know, a, a a grand message, um, what, what exactly would I be looking for? Uh, well, uh, it can come as a grand message, and it does with some people. Uh, but also, it can be the result of um, getting in touch with your feelings and noticing 
what kinds of feelings are elicited uh, by different uh, uh, by by different factors. Uh, in, and in this case, you're talking about a career situation, but it would apply to relationships and things like that. Getting in touch with what are, you know, basically desire and aversion are compulsions. And with aversion, there is, you can sense the compulsive aspect that arises that wants you to, to push away or turn away or withdraw from something. And with desire, you can learn to feel that uh, compulsive draw towards or desire to hold on to or so on and so forth. This, and these, these are the kinds of motivations that you want to see beyond and you want to get in touch with those emotions or, or those uh, feelings. I shouldn't call them emotions. Let's just call them senses. You know, just like we said, the sense of that compulsion. But there will be other aspects that have more to do with what we might call your personal values and aspirations, uh, your sense of rightness and uh, so forth. Um, even use the word wholesomeness, maybe. I mean, words have different meanings for different people, but I think hopefully you, you understand the, 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 the kind of categorization I'm trying to identify here. So just as with some things, you can detect that sense of compulsion either towards or away from something, you can also learn to sense that uh, feeling of, of this is this is valuable. This is this is good. This is uh, this is worthy. This is wholesome. And with other things, the feeling that that this uh, this is not good. Uh, this is not even the sense that this is not a good way for me to spend my time. This is not a good activity for me to engage in. You just have that sense, and it's a different sense than the compulsion to push away. It's just a sense that this is something that re really it doesn't elicit any sort of admiration or inspiration or anything else in me, whereas this other thing has this uh, this sense of aspiration and inspiration that it, that it elicits. Um, if you can use your introspective mindfulness uh, to just get familiar with those uh, kinds of senses, then this is going to this is going to help you untangle this quite a bit. Now. <clears throat> Does anything that I've said resonate with you? I mean, can you can you recognize what I'm what I'm referring to as a compulsion towards or away from something? And can you 
can you recognize the distinction between that and something that you consider to be valuable and some, as versus something that you consider to be either of no valuable or even the opposite? I think I can, yeah. Is this, this seems to be more than a, a knee-jerk reaction. You know, it's, it's more than just the hand in the fire or, you know, a, a simple craving. So it, hence why I'm asking the question. I think there is something to it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, then, then there's the aspect where I, I still, you know, I, I have responsibilities, a mortgage, a family, and mm-hmm. I need to provide for them. Um, you know, being able to uh, toe the line where maybe I'm moving on to, to something that is providing more value to myself and the world, but still um, mm-hmm. you know, meeting my responsibilities here. Yes. And if you come to the conclusion that there is something that you're capable of, that is more valuable, more consistent with your inner sense of, of value, and you can find the pathway that leads to that, then by all means, that should, that should become your focus while keeping in mind the importance of being able to support your family. But now I have no idea what level that you support your family right now, but if you are in the uh, uh, upper echelons of the middle class or uh, something like that, then you could consider uh, you can consider how you could probably be even happier with less in the, in the way of, of material goods. You want you would like your children to go to the best schools that they they can, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to go to the most expensive and elite schools. Uh, you want to live in a decent and healthy neighborhood where you are safe, your children are safe, and things like that. Perhaps, but perhaps the mortgage on that could be met with a different kind of work that was much more internally satisfying and uh, um, and, and meaningful and consistent with your personal values. Now there's a completely different approach that you can take too. You can take your current career and you can say, how can I change this? How can I make, how can I make the situation I'm in and the things I'm doing, how can I make this into something that satisfies my internal value systems? Um, you know, uh, just uh, pick an example at random. Let's say you're a salesperson, and there's a lot of things about being a salesperson that you really don't like. This this whole thing of trying to convince somebody that they want something that they may not really need, and then putting the pressure on them to close the sale and stuff like that. Now. Uh, and especially if you're on commission, then that would put you in a, in a that would be a real dilemma, wouldn't it? <laughs> but, uh, but in that situation, the thing that you would ask yourself is, is there something, is, is, is there an approach I can take where maybe um, what I'm selling uh, uh, that I 
sell it only to people for whom it's really going to be valuable and necessary rather than persuading to buy people to buy something they don't really need? Or could I play a different role uh, than what I do now? And, uh, you know, uh, could, could I find, when I say play a, a different role in, in your organization, perhaps you could find a role that rather than selling a product, but you're uh, in a position to improve the uh, working conditions and the quality of life and so on and so forth for your co-workers. You know, uh, it just there's an infinite number of possibilities, but both, po both, both are quite open. And once you get clear on what are values and what are based on um, just uh, a, a desire and aversion, then it will be, it will be easier to make those decisions. Um, you know, if you commit yourself, I don't know if you're ready to do this, but if you commit yourself to the Dharma, the wonderful thing about that is it simplifies your life and your decisions tremendously. Um, you still have to wrestle with the same things if you've got a family and you need to support them, but it, it tremendously clarifies exactly these kinds of questions that uh, I'm suggesting that you investigate in yourself because you have now, you know, if, uh, the more deeply that you can uh, integrate the Dharma and Dharma values uh, into, in, into your life and in, into, into the workings of your mind, you will have this wonderful and remarkable experience, and I can attest to this firsthand, and maybe others here as well, where it's just, you're, you're, it's, it is almost that kind of profound seeing your destiny in a way. Uh, you know, you, 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 discover, you discover the hero's journey for yourself, you know, things like that. But when that kind of clarity, it's just like a bright light shining on things, and it becomes so obvious uh, uh, the kinds of changes that you should make and the different directions that you should take in order to, um, in order for that to happen. So does any of that resonate as well? Yeah, it, it absolutely does. Um, it, it sounds like I have some work to do in uh, both meaning of the word, the Dharma and my career. So thank you very much. Yes. And in your meditation, just recognize that that is the real, it's this mindfulness, especially when you're, when you have the kind of metacognitive introspective awareness that's called Sati Sampajana, where you not only know what's going on both in your mind and, and, and in your environment, but you know where your, your behaviors are arising from and whether or not they're consistent with your inner values. And so the, your meditation practice is going to be a major component in empowering you this way. Thank you. Good luck with it. And uh, just as uh, I told David earlier, uh, let me know how it works out for you. I will. Okay. So Brian Farrell has joined us. And uh, uh, 
and Alex as well. Do either of you have questions from before that uh, didn't get answered? No. Okay. Uh, great. Well, uh, I guess it's time for us to go ahead and uh, I look at some of the questions that uh, were left over from before. And uh, they'll be available on recording for those that, uh, that originally asked them. Hi, Ted. My, my apologies for my late arrival, and I'm afraid that I, there's people I'm going to need to apologize to who probably came and thought this was they had something wrong and left. Yeah, well, uh, I I uh, screwed up even worse than you did, so so I win. Also, you didn't even you didn't even know I was late. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. No, I Maybe forgot to set a calendar. No, it's too. <laughs> so I'm really sorry about that. Uh, yes. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's just uh, you know uh, I want to look at some of these questions that didn't get dealt with before. So uh, this is really long question from Michael Walsh, and I is it I believe that is one that we haven't answered yet. Is that correct, Ted? Do you know? Uh. Can you copy the link into the into the chat? Um, I'm, I'm not actually looking at it right now. Uh, I'm just looking at it on the Patreon website. Uh, right. So. Uh, well, let's see. So I, I I can send you the link. When I listened to the uh, the March uh, uh, talk just yesterday, mm -hmm. I stopped on that one. You, you, I'm sorry, you which? You. I listened to the March call yesterday, and, and I believe you did not answer the wall. Oh, okay. That's where Great. you stopped. Wonderful. Thank you very much. That, that's, that's what I thought, too. It just didn't seem familiar. So, Michael asks us, uh, intellectually, I am struggling to reconcile having worldly goals in life with the mission of awakening. It seems like having career goals, romantic attachments, sexual desires, a worldly life, these are ultimately delusions based on craving and narratives about self. Wouldn't the eradication of craving mean ultimately abandoning these things as superficial and the subsequent adoption of a monastic lifestyle? And so I'm going to deal with that first rather than uh, reading on here first. But you have, okay, we'll begin at the beginning. First things first, you have to start where you are, okay? And denying where you are and what you are is not going to bring, bring you particularly closer to your goal of awakening. Now, it's true that if you were to um, give up everything in your life right now and enter a monastery, depending upon the monastery that you entered into, you might find yourself just as busy as you were in your daily life with no time to meditate, etc. Or you might get lucky and find yourself in a monastery where you actually had the opportunity to do that. 
what you're doing is you're separating yourself from these things that um, can be and most typically are the sources of craving and uh, reinforcements to self-clinging. But uh, there is nothing to keep a lay person uh, from achieving the goal of awakening. Now, the Buddha had many lay followers, and uh, there's a, a couple of places where there's an extensive list of them, and he speaks of their, uh, of, of their special qualities. Uh, there is, uh, and they're not just stream entrants, they include arhats. Um, an example that always comes to my mind um, is Chita, the lay person, but he's mentioned in a number of different suttas. And the Buddha identified him as the best teacher of the Dhamma of all of his followers. And the so there, there is nothing inherently uh, prohibitive about uh, a living life of a layperson and, and becoming awakened. Is it a greater challenge? Yes. Is it a, a kind of greater challenge that's so, so huge that it's not worth, it's not worth uh, trying? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, the the things that I can tell you, and I know I've repeated these before, so other people will have heard them. Um, uh, first of all, there's a rather famous story of uh, one of the bhikkhus who went off to the forest by himself and practiced by himself and believed that he had achieved uh, awakening, uh, absence of craving and aversion, uh, the complete liberation from uh, the, the attachment to self and so forth. And so he gets up and he starts to travel back to rejoin his sangha and tell them uh, of what, what has transpired. And the first crossroads he comes to is, uh, as most crossroads were in that day, uh, a marketplace where everybody comes to sell their goods. And so it was noisy and there were people bickering and arguing and there was uh, animal dung all over the road and, and, you know, just all this kind of stuff. And uh, he realized at that point that what he felt he had become the changes that he felt had occurred when he was in his seclusion in the forest um, were they didn't penetrate deeply enough to withstand the experience of entering a marketplace. And then the second thing that I often repeat to people with this question is uh, a conversation that I had with Geshe Dorje, who was, and I believe still is, a professor at University of Arkansas. Um, as a matter of fact, he got, the, got a, an award for being the most popular uh, of all the teachers at uh, uh, University of Arkansas. And I was in a conversation with him on exactly this question of uh, the path of a layperson and the path of, uh, of a monastic. 
And uh, he agreed completely that the path of a lay person is more difficult but more powerful than the path of a monastic. And uh, this kind of would go into a digression, but one of the things that I think we're all aware of are people that are believed to be or purported to be um, at a high state of uh, uh, spiritual realization, awakening, whatever you want to call it, who manifest behaviors which are uh, completely inconsistent with our notions of what would be appropriate for uh, an awakened person. And I think we see that a lot when we see monastics, for example, from uh, the Zen tradition and Zen monasteries of Japan. And since the Chinese invasion and the Tibetan diaspora, we see people who uh, grew up in a monastic environment, and then when they find themselves teaching uh, and leading sanghas uh, in the United States and Great Britain and Europe and things like that, that, uh, that uh, their behavior uh, has qualities that uh, are certainly nothing that we would aspire to for the sake of awakening. Um, so I think in a sense this illustrates to us uh, just exactly what uh, Geshe Dorje was saying and what that story that monk is pointing to um, is that if you remove yourself from as much as possible from the sources of craving, you can come to believe that you have overcome craving. And if you remove yourself from all of those things that are going to trigger self-clinging, you can come to believe that there is no more self-clinging. But put your, then once you're put in a situation where those things are present, then uh, the weaknesses uh, are revealed. And so, um, they, back to your question, it's not a question of uh, denying having a career and making a living in the world. It's a question of getting in touch with what is a wholesome way to do that. It's very similar to what we were just talking about earlier with Kyle. Um, finding a way to make a living, uh, pursuing a career that is consistent with uh, and indeed can be made part of your Dharma practice. Uh, and you can be very inventive in how you make it a part of your Dharma practice. Um, an awakened person, the one compulsion they have is what we call compassion. And so it would be normal for an awakened person to be active in the world, trying to make a positive difference, trying to make positive change in the world. And so that's the way our ordinary, uh, culturally, culturally inculcated uh, career aspirations can be transformed. Romantic attachments. Uh, romantic attachments arise out of 
primitive instincts for reproduction and powerful, uh, uh, powerful cravings. Uh, you know, you mentioned sexual desires. Uh, romantic relationships are largely transactional. Uh, if you give me what I need, I'll give you what you need. And, uh, uh, and they often fail because one person or the other feels like, well, I'm not really getting what I need. And, you know, I'm going to go look elsewhere. But those same don't, that doesn't mean you need to not engage in a romantic attachment. Practice the Dharma, be as mindful as you can. And as you approach awakening, then all of these motivations that arise out of delusion become replaced by something different. Uh, that uh, romantic love being, instead of being a transactional thing where, um, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, uh, it becomes uh, something where there is true loving kindness. There is, is seeing and understanding another person deeply and it's developing a kind of love and sympathetic joy uh, to, uh, uh, it becomes a vehicle for compassion for people as they grow older to take care of each other or when there's disease or when there's other things like this. So all of these worldly things are subject to transformation. So um, now with the eradication of craving, you can do things that look very similar to what somebody else might do out of craving, but that doesn't mean that you are. And uh, so to, to an outsider who doesn't know you very well, they might be able to tell, tell not, uh, they might not be able to tell the difference. But those things that are normally based in craving can become things that uh, I have, have taken on the transformative values of awakening. So you go on to say, would an awakened being even have a calling in life? Well, I think I've already answered that. The calling in life comes to be an exercise of uh, equanimity and compassion. Basically, uh, you know, and this will sound familiar that uh, you do what you can do to make the world a better place or even to make one person's experience better than it is. Um, you uh, accept that uh, there are things that you can't do anything about and you, you don't uh, waste your energy on those and you have the wisdom to know the difference. You know, that's the serenity prayer. It's, uh, I don't know if it originates with, but it's common to the 12 step uh, method uh, of AA, you know, uh, you, you do what you can do and accept what you can't do and have the wisdom to know the difference. So you can have, certainly as a writer, a writer is many awakened beings uh, have become writers. A scientist, absolutely. There, uh, there are many meditators and many people who are dedicated to awakening who are doing science nowadays. And the nice thing about it is they're doing science related to, uh, to how can we facilitate the awakening of a greater number of people. Uh, or is the calling just another word for delusion or craving? Well, I mean, what I'm saying is it can be 
it can arise out of compassion and equanimity, or it can arise out of desire and aversion. Um, and that's the difference that practicing the Dharma uh, and developing the mental skills uh, that uh, are part of med meditation allow you to do. So is the desire to live out of these callings just a delusion? Well, often what can happen, but by no means always, but it can happen that there's during this transition, sometimes it's, sometimes it's part delusion and part wisdom. And uh, over time, as the wisdom begins to predominate, you may make the appropriate changes. Um, as, at least most definitely make the appropriate internal changes so that that you are doing what you're doing out of uh, wisdom, compassion, um, loving kindness and with and in a state of equanimity and the delusion falls away completely. Would an arhat be a famous artist or a writer? Well, I already spoken to the writing part of it, but um, if an arhat felt like that was the greatest contribution they could make to the well-being of sentient beings and perhaps the ultimate liberation of all sentient beings, of course, why not? A CEO. Um, well, we there are some not very many, unfortunately, but there are some CEOs in the world who, um, for whom that is their primary motivation. They do want to make positive change in the world. They do want to relieve suffering. Um, how many of them, I mean, to be a CEO is to be pretty damn busy and to have a lot of, uh, a lot of demands. It may be very hard to follow a Dharma path as a CEO, but um, uh, it's not inherently, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're not in conflict with each other, or a, a scientist. Would they want to create something? Uh, they'd want to create, they'd want to create a world in which there was um, less uh, avoidable and unnecessary suffering. Um, isn't the motivation behind these creative activities ultimately craving? It's not because there are really, it, it, it's not in the case that I'm describing because there are two kinds of desires that people can have. One is called tana, which means thirst, and it's referring to that compulsiveness that arises out of self-clinging and self-centeredness. The other is called chanda. And for example, the wish of a bodhisattva to achieve awakening for the sake of all sentient beings uh, so that they can do something powerfully transformative in the world, that's chanda, that's not tana. And so... Uh, this is something that is very commonly misunderstood. The idea that any inclination towards something has to be unwholesome and any inclination away from something is somehow unwholesome, but that's absurd as soon as you think about it because, of course, an awakened being would have a preference to uh, 
a preference towards that which is uh, is is noble, wise, and good, and uh, would not experience aversion to the uh, to what we might call the many evils of the world, everything from war to capitalist exploitation and things like that. But uh, but they would be motivated to um, to do anything that was in there, you know, and once again, this comes back to if you can do something about it, you do, and if you can't, you don't, you just accept it, but they would be treating it in the same way. So it's there, there's a difference between craving and positive aspirations for, or aspirations for positive change in the world, just as there are in oneself. The desire to become a meditator and to become awakened is, in a sense, a very selfish desire in the beginning. But as you mature spiritually, it becomes less and less selfish. So you start out with tana, uh, tana to achieve stream entry. And as a stream entrant, there's still lots of tana. And then that, that tana that's left is dealt with in the second path. And then that leaves still another kind of tana that gets dealt with in the third path. But what happens in place of tana is, is chanda. So simple, the, the simple inclinations towards and away uh, are not in themselves desire and aversion or forms of craving. They may very well be, and most often they are, but they need not be. And part of being awakening, uh, of awakening is, is uh, the elimination of tana and its replacement by chanda. Would an arhat have sex? Would they want to, if desire was truly gone? Um, well, uh, you know, uh, another thing that I probably repeat too often, but if you offered the Buddha a, a dish of haagen ice cream, uh, your favorite flavor, and a dish of uh, canned cat food, which one do you suppose the Buddha would take? Um, now, preferences, and one of the things is that awakening does not eliminate at all the experience of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. The Vedana, or Vedana is the English pronunciation of the Pali word is, does, is not something that uh, goes away when you become a Buddha, any more than being able to distinguish sweet from salty or bitter from uh, sweet or something like that, and red from green. Uh, so, um, would an arhat have sex? For the right reasons, absolutely. Uh, if you are in a romantic relationship and that relationship involves, uh, e evolves as you evolve and as you awaken, then you could, there's nothing to prevent you from enjoying this, the pleasurable aspects of sex and even more so enjoying providing a person this the other person with pleasure 
this is not, you know, this, this doesn't need to arise out of desire. It can be at the level of, uh, of, of a combination of love and simple preference of uh, the ice cream over the cat food, right? It would depend on the circumstances and things like that, but desire does not need to be a part of it at all. And of course, you know, an arhat is not going to uh, have the the kinds of unhealthy compulsions that are often manifested in our sexual behaviors. So. Um, aren't worldly goals just delusions based on craving? Uh, how do you reconcile living a modern Western lifestyle, which fetishes achievement, career, sex, fame, and finding a romantic partner as the ideal forms of happiness with the Dharma, which sees through these things? Well, you've just answered the question. You see through them. You see through them, and you can still achieve things. You can still have a career. As I just said, you can still have sex. You may become famous, but you don't really care about being famous for the sake of being famous. Um, you know, uh, so I, I think we've already dealt with that. A modern lifestyle seems completely at odds with the Dharma and the lifestyle the Buddha espoused as ideal, the monastic lifestyle. Well, in its inherent nature, the modern lifestyle is. Um, you cannot look anywhere or go anywhere uh, except maybe into a darkened room in the back of your house or maybe your garage is all junky and needs to be cleaned out without being bombarded by people intentionally trying to elicit desire from you so that you're going to do something or buy something that they want you to do and buy. So, yeah, <laughs> modern cultural values are they're, they're oriented just the wrong way, which means that when you come to the place where you can start seeing through them and recognize them for what they are, when you come to the place where you recognize that to grasp to these things is to suffer sooner or later, but absolutely guarantees that you're going to suffer. You know, when you recognize that, uh, that any, any kind of grasping to anything is going to lead to suffering, then you see through this, right? Uh, and that's that's really that's really what it's all about. You could go to a monastery and you could hide from these things, uh, but then you don't really know how deep your vision and understanding of the suffering inherent uh, in, in the desires that can be elicited really really is. So. So I, let's see, I'm going to, it seems like a lot of your question here, uh, Michael, wish you were here, but it uh, seems to be kind of repetitive and saying the same things. Uh, certainly the lifestyle that the Buddha recommended uh, was a withdrawal from, uh, from daily life. And um, it is an easier path, but it's not necessarily as easy as it may seem. A lot of things went on in the Sangha. There were lots of, there was lots of 
bickering and disagreement and they people still have to deal with other people the vinaya uh, the rules for uh, a monk the the vinaya is just full of uh, accounts of, of those kinds of things um, yes certainly the call to renunciation can be life denying and there are there are shades of buddhism which are very life denying and i don't think they are really what the buddha intended um, the buddha I, I i think that the spiritual path and i think we can also see this in the buddha's own life um, he was a renunciant in the sense of not having money, home, things like that. But he was extremely active in the world, teaching uh, both his bhikkhus and bhikkhunis and also uh, the lay people that came to him. He engaged with and uh, played a powerful role in influencing uh, those people in his society who were in a position to make the greatest difference. Uh, kings, princes, uh, very wealthy merchants, uh, people like that. And uh, so the Buddha was very engaged with the world himself. I think what maybe we don't see uh, but really becomes obvious on a lay path is there's a place for withdrawal, definitely. If you can reduce the intensity of the onslaught of, of self-promoting and, and uh, craving-inducing influences of life in order to gain, gain some traction in the clear seeing and understanding of yourself and of things the way they are, then comes a point where you need to re-engage with the world. So a spiritual path involves both, not, not just one uh, or the other. And, and the Buddha exemplified that because he engaged life fully, even though he was at the same time, in a sense, uh, a renunciant, and even though he did encourage um, that same kind of renunciation. But the way I see it is it freed him up to do the kind of work he wanted to do in the world, which once again kind of goes back to the discussion of Kyle's question that, you know, sometimes that's a sacrifice you make. But if you're married and have children, then you have to take that into account as well. Um, conflict between Western values and the Dharma. Western values at their core are very much based on individualism uh, there is an, there is a tendency to disregard how much all of the success of western culture has based on cooperation and to uh to sort of cultivate the notion that the only reason anybody ever does anything beneficial for someone but themselves uh is that in some other way it's going to ultimately be beneficial to themselves. And so the, there's sort of a denial of an aspect of ourselves, which is truly altruistic, uh, you know, uh, and, and 
that's an unfortunate characteristic of Western values. Um, capitalism could be a system that does a lot of good, but instead what we find is, is that uh, capitalism has been turned into something that is doing an enormous amount of harm in the world. So apologies for your meandering uh, accepted, but uh, it felt like a worthwhile thing to talk about. So um, I do thank you, Michael, for asking that question. And I hope the others of you here today found that <laughs> for some of you, it's probably a review of things that you already knew and understood well, but um, never hurts to think about them again reinforce them. So I think that that's probably about all the time that uh, I can put into this for today. So thank you for coming. And uh, once again, I apologize for those who may have come and gone because I was late. But I'll see as many of you as who want to uh, a week from today. Uh, in a different time slot and with a whole new set of questions to look at. So, thank you very much. <laughs>